Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. On today's episode, I have Dr. Colleen Cutcliffe. She is a microbiome scientist and the CEO and co-founder of Pendulum, a company that creates microbiome products. Colleen received her PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from John Hopkins University. I recently had the opportunity to hear Colleen speak at A4M Las Vegas, and I thought she would be a great guest to have on the show and knew you all would enjoy hearing from her. So thank you, Colleen, for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So I recently heard you on two podcasts, Ben Greenfield and Peter Atiyah. I'm curious, were you nervous or stressed about being on Peter Atiyah? Because he's got quite the following these days. He does. He does. Well, I met Peter last summer and we really got along and hit it off. But I have to tell you that before I went on his podcast, I did listen to another, you know, one of his podcasts in preparation for it. And it it was definitely very intimidating. And he did not disappoint. I mean, it's a two and a half hour session that was a real grilling down on in on all the ins and outs of science. And as you and I discussed, I've been running a business for the last decade. And so I haven't had that kind of grilling on the science in a long, long time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he definitely gets in the weeds. That's for sure. I mean, if if you want to really dig deep into a topic, I feel like he's he's down there in the nitty gritty. So I was wondering, like, man, two and a half hours taking rapid fire questions from Peter Atia. That had to be Intense. (laughs) It was intense, but you know, it was fun. I mean, he also asked me questions that no one else has ever asked me, really went down avenues that we haven't gone down. And so it it was also, I think, a fun and and interesting conversation, but it was intense. At the end, I was like, I need a smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I enjoyed it. And thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me today. But let's just like lay the groundwork a little bit. How long has Pendulum been in business? We've been around for about a decade, but we've only had products on the market for about two to three years because we spent the first almost decade of the company really doing R&D and preclinical and clinical work to try to tap into the microbiome. Okay. Interesting. That's that's a lot of legwork to get the company up and going, which I want to get in the weeds in that here shortly. But where's your company located? We are based out of San Francisco. So we do all of our R&D work as well as actually all the manufacturing is done here in San Francisco. Oh, really? Okay. Expensive. That's that. <laughs> definitely, definitely was not the game plan, but it ended up being that way just because the technology around that was required to grow these strains, it just hadn't been developed by anybody. So we kind of did it out of necessity. How many square foot is your facility there? That's a great question. I actually don't know. Okay. I didn't know how, like, if you had like this massive plant where you're manufacturing this, or if you're able to do it inside like a five thousand or so square foot facility. Oh no, no, it's not. It's a bigger than five thousand. Okay, yeah. perfect. So, what are the top two or three products that you carry? I think you have, you know, maybe around a dozen products that you advertise on your website. But what are the top two or three? Well, I think the key products that um, we have are starting with our flagship product, Pendulum Glucose Control. This is sort of the first and only probiotic that's ever been shown to lower A1C and blood glucose spikes in people with type 2 diabetes. 
that's the first product we came out with. And um, honestly, that's the product that I take. We also have Metabolic Daily, which is uh, literally the exact same strains as Pendulum Glucose Control, but at a lower dose. And that's really intended for anybody who's trying to help their body metabolize sugars and carbs better. And then we also sell the single strain of Acromancia, which is a keystone strain that is in both of those formulations. And a ton of new data is emerging around its importance for our microbiome and our general health. And the last thing I'll profile is polyphenols, which have been clinically shown to increase acromancia levels. So we also sell this polyphenol booster, which you can take with these different probiotics to try to bolster acromancia. Okay, let's talk about acromancia. First off, let's spell it for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's the biggest challenge here. So people can look this up after the show. Spell acromancia. Yeah. Our shortcut internally is AKK. So that, that gets you started. So it's A-K-K-E-R-M-A-N-S-I-A, Ackermansia. That was like a spelling bee. You even looked off to the totally. side. Like, let's where's the I got? Envision the word. <laughs> okay. I take it back. Maybe this is harder than the Peter Atia podcast. <laughs> okay. So would you say that the discovery of being able to encapsulate Acromancia to be effective is kind of what put Pendulum on the map to create these other products. Is this Acromancia like the the strand? Well, I think what really put us on the map was glucose control and that formulation which contains Acromancia and this clinical data that was published in BMJ that shows you can lower A1C just with this you know microbiome intervention. But I think what maybe accelerated that was our ability to demonstrate that we could grow acromancia in a manufacturing plant. There's some real challenges to just being able to grow it, but then also we could deliver it back into a person's body and demonstrate that it was, you know, having efficacy and doing the work that we expected to do. Cause you're basically taking the strain out of a person's, you know, biological system, growing it in this manufacturing artificial man-made plant. And then you're asking it to get delivered back into a person, get to the right location, revive itself and performance activities and have health outcomes. And I think every one of those stages is riddled with its challenges and being able to show that you can get that whole thing done end to end, I think is a pretty big deal. And to be honest, I'm not sure that we even knew how hard that was going to be. But I think that this strain is something that lots of people have started to learn about and are looking for. And, And so that has really, over the last probably year or two, been an important part of our growth. So let's talk about the gut microbiome and just maybe frame what the gut microbiome actually is and what we've learned about it and maybe the respect that we have for it now today and maybe that we didn't have going back 30 years ago in in the medical setting. Sure. I mean, I think things like probiotics and yogurts have been around for a long, long time, but I don't think the medical community has really taken any of those products seriously just because of the basically the lack of really strong clinical evidence, and then also the publications kind of being so contrary even to each other. And so I think the microbiome science, which has really just emerged in the last, you know, probably 20 years, um, is premised on things that I think are much more what 
clinicians and scientists are used to seeing. So it's really premised in DNA sequencing. You know, there's these preclinical and clinical models, mechanism of action where you can measure each of the different steps. And so I think now this microbiome science is starting to be much more accepted and embraced by the scientific and medical community as important. And when we talk about the microbiome, what we're talking about is, you know, when you eat foods, it first goes to your stomach and then traverses through your intestinal tract all the way to this place called the distal colon, And the distal colon is where, when we talk about the gut microbiome, that's where most of these microbes are really residing. It is a, there's no oxygen in that environment. It's pretty far down. So a lot of foods have been digested and gone through a couple of rounds of this. Some foods haven't, but you're really kind of talking about the distal colon of the microbiome. And the reason that that area has become super interesting is because what we're finding is there's a lot of activity going on there. And that activity is very directly related to the health of our colon and the health of our GI. It's important to our metabolic health. It's important to our cardiovascular health. It's important to our immune systems, our inflammatory response. And more recently, what's emerging is that it's important for our brain health. And so there are a lot of diseases and health states that it turns out are really driven by all these activities that are happening in this distal colon. And so I think people are starting to get really excited about, well, what is happening here? And can we start to target the microbiome for, you know, health? issues that we haven't been able to target it for before. Yeah. And I think there's some interesting studies that I would like you to speak on. I think they've all been done in mice, but how the gut microbiome impacts obesity in people and some of the microbiome transplants that they've done in mice. I think people would find that interesting. Yes. So obesity is obviously a huge epidemic and a a problem that we're all trying to solve. And historically, we've known nutrition and exercise are really important levers to helping with obesity. But what's recently been discovered is that the microbiome is probably the third lever here in helping us battle obesity. And so it all kind of started with these fecal microbiome transplants. These are kind of exactly what they sound like. You're literally taking feces from one person and putting it into another. And what's been observed, and, and basically what that feces is, is it has all these strains that are in your gut microbiome. And what people have observed is that you can transplant feces from a healthy donor into a sick person and start to see changes in their metabolism. And it started in these mouse studies where kind of one of the most seminal ones is where they took the microbiome from an obese woman, they transplanted into a thin mouse, and they saw that thin mouse became obese. They then took the microbiome from a thin woman, put it into an obese mouse, and they could see that obese mouse became thin again. And then they took a microbiome from the thin mouse, I got it from the thin woman, put it into the obese woman, they got it from the obese, uh, the obese mouse, I got it from the obese woman, and they could make that obese mouse thin again. And so basically, like these mice are getting, gaining weight and losing weight just with these microbiome transplants. And I think for me, at least one of the most compelling things about this, these studies is that the two women donors are identical twins. So genetically, they're exactly the same, and it's the microbiome which is changing the metabolism of these mouse models where they're they're transplanting these into, and it kind of starts to answer our age-old question, which is, why is it that one person can go on a diet and another person goes on the same diet and one person loses a lot more weight? And even, you know, within families, how it feels like certain people are gaining weight at a different rate than other people, even though they're genetically from the same pool. And so it starts to point to this answer of, well, it's really in the microbiome. And when you double click on that, what you realize is that these people that are battling obesity and type 2 diabetes are low or entirely missing some of these really important strains for metabolism. And so obesity is definitely, I think, a big target uh, for us and, and for many others. 
Do you think there'll be a day when we're doing those transplants in humans? Well, those transplants are actually happening they in are? humans. They are. A lot, frequently? Well, I know I would not say frequently, but they are okay. they are definitely happening, and you can see people publishing on results that they're finding. Actually, one of the countries where they've been sort of the most forward thinking on these FMTs is Australia, and they basically have shown that these fecal microbiome transplants can have efficacy for diabetes, for cardiovascular issues, even some neurological disorders, and so there's some really compelling evidence for, from these that are happening, and definitely has the ick factor. So I wouldn't say it's, you know, ever going to be really widely adopted. But I think what it shows all of us is that there's something in that microbiome that if you could figure out what the specific components are that are conferring that health benefit, you could start to make a product that wasn't just the kitchen sink, you know, throwing it into somebody. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just trying to think if I'm an obese person, and that could be my answer to sort of resetting my gut microbiome, I think I would sign up for it. I mean, what am I missing? What I mean, I know it doesn't sound uh, it sounds kind of gross. But I mean, is there are there complications in, in this procedure? I don't know enough about it, obviously. So that could be a dumb question. No, not at all. You know, I think the procedure itself is relatively straightforward. I mean, there's two ways to get the transplant. One is through the mouth and the other is through the other end. And and these have been done. And I think they're, they're, there's relatively safe ways to do the transplants. I think the bigger safety concern is actually what is hap- what is in this gut microbiome? What's in this gamish that you're putting in yourself? It's true. It may have these strains that are going to help you with your metabolism, help you lose weight and all of that stuff. But what else is it doing? And how is your body going to adapt to that? And I think that's really where the safety concerns come in. I mean, you don't know, even if Jerry gave you a great stool sample on Monday, is Jerry going to give you a great stool yeah. sample on Friday? So you don't really know what you're putting into your body. And so I think there's some uncertainty there. There could be pathogens, there could be things that maybe help you with your diabetes, but cause bone density problems. So I think that's maybe where the safety component comes in. Okay. So what compromises one's microbiome? Is is it food, environmental factors? Like how do you how do you promote a healthy gut? Well, the number one most impactful way you ch- we change our microbiomes and I would say probably everybody has done this is through taking an antibiotic. To be clear, antibiotics are good for us when we have bacterial infections. I'm I'm not in any way an anti-antibiotic, but When you take an antibiotic, it is a nuclear bomb to your microbiome. It really does kill everything off and and wipe the whole system out. And so if you think about it, like if you have this beautiful, you know, garden with flowers and vegetables, you're just dumping a bunch of bleach on it. You're killing everything. So antibiotics are one of the most potent ways we can change our microbiome. Eventually, your microbiome will restore and come back. But oftentimes, what you get back in the end is not the same as what you started with. And in fact, we know that people um, and animals who are on lots of antibiotics early in life have a higher propensity for developing obesity, type 2 diabetes, ADHD, allergies, celiac disease, all of these things later on in life really correlated to those early multiple antibiotic doses. So that's the, the first thing. The second most impactful thing that you can do to modify your microbiome is, is through your diet. These are all living inside of you, and you are literally choosing who's going to grow or not grow depending on what food that you eat. And so having a diet that's high in fiber, high in polyphenols, helps to bolster some of these specific strains that have beneficial um, activities for our microbiome. 
Outside of that, there's a lot of things that happen that alter our microbiome that we don't have control over. So we know that as we age, our microbiome can become depleted. As we go through periods of intense stress, our microbiome can become depleted. When we travel and our circadian rhythm gets disrupted, we can, that causes our microbiomes to become depleted. And for we women, when we go through menopause, that causes our microbiome to become depleted. So these are all things that are just part of being a human being that can cause us to lose these strains over time. So if somebody's listening to this and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm taking antibiotics right now. I'm done in three days. What should I do? I think that there are two important things that can be done when you're on an, even when you're on an antibiotic. One is actually you can be taking probiotics. So I had long sort of said taking an antibiotic with a probiotic doesn't make any sense because the antibiotic is just going to kill it. But there have been several studies that have shown that actually if you take probiotics and then take antibiotics, that somehow on the other side of those the, the antibiotic treatment, your ability to kind of recolonize these benefit these so-called beneficial bacteria becomes easier. And so I think that's that's one thing. And the other thing is that you can be eating foods that are going to feed those same bacteria. So really, if ever you were going to start to really try to increase fibers in your diet, on the heels of an antibiotic is the moment to do that because that's when you can have kind of the most impact on your microbiome. Would you say the same thing's true with children that are coming off an antibiotic or on an antibiotic to, to really pick a good prebiotic for them and focus on the fiber foods? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that, you know, we know that whole foods that are in the produce section, these are all really helpful for facilitating the growth of these these microbes. Are there any of your products that you would recommend somebody take that would help do the same? Yeah. I mean, for for us, I think that because we're very focused on metabolic health and, and helping your body metabolize sugars and carbs, both metabolic daily and pendulum glucose control are, they have, they're a formulation of strains. There's also prebiotic actually in there that are designed to work together to help you improve that metabolism. And so for sure, I mean, these are, those are the two that I would, would recommend along with trying to increase your prebiotic intake. Uh, explain the difference between a prebiotic and a probiotic. And do you have to take both of them together? You do not have to take both of them together, but it's sort of a, a little bit of a one-two punch. So basically, the probiotics are the strains themselves. So these are the live bacteria that have all these functions. And then the prebiotic is the food that feeds those bacteria. So things like inulin and these fibers that we're talking about. And so, you know, in order to get these probiotics to actually colonize in your gut, which is really what you're looking for, it can be helpful to deliberately feed them these, you know, specific prebiotics could be in the form of supplements or trying to increase them in your diet. Alternatively, if you're trying to increase the probiotic colonization and you have a small amount in your in your gut, you can try to overload on the prebiotics. So you're selecting for feeding these strains that are maybe in low amounts in your gut to try to get them to grow and, and kind of win out in that ecosystem in terms of, you know, the competitive, it's, it's a competitive landscape where you have all these microbes that are trying to grow. And if you feed them, they will grow. But if you're able to give both the food and the probiotic together, you're really giving yourself the best chance of colonizing these strains. So you could do it in either direction, but I would say that it probably takes longer and you're not guaranteed. But if you do them together, you have your best shot of actually getting them to colonize. Okay, perfect. What about for the people that take an anti-acid medicine, like that had the acid reflex, uh, what's that doing on their gut? And is that kind of nuking this bacteria by lowering that stomach acid? Or have you found that it doesn't have much of an effect? 
Well, that really depends on the probiotic that you're taking. So a lot of these things that are on the shelves right now, lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, they really just need to get to the other side of the stomach in order to to have benefit for, for a lot of people. And so in that case, changing the pH of the stomach, you know, might not impact those very much. Similarly, if you are taking a probiotic that is encapsulated in a way that gets it through the stomach acid, so there are these like enteric coatings that you can have on the pill itself that get you through the stomach acid, it starts to become irrelevant what the pH is of the stomach because it's kind of pushing its way all the way through that. And and then we have, in addition to that component, also a delayed release because we know you're trying to get all the way to the distal colon. And so there's actually a time delayed release to enable the capsule to deliver the goods to the distal colon. And so in that case, changing the acidity of your stomach through these antacids, you know, shouldn't really be an issue. But that's where it comes into play, picking the right brand, because how many of these brands and companies have a delayed release in their probiotic? I don't see that typically advertised. I mean, maybe that's not something they're putting on the outside of the box or how many people are going above and beyond on the encapsulation of of the pill to make sure it can get through all of that. I mean, do you know, is that common? No, I I would say it's not coming because, you know, it costs money. It's expensive. And I think in a world where Amazon tells us the price per pill, a lot of manufacturers are incentivized to kind of cut costs where they can. And I also would, would just sort of as a buyer beware, this is a field and all supplements in general that is riddled with a lot of just junk on the shelves. And you know, Amazon and retail and all these places. I mean, there have been multiple studies showing that if you, that there's just not truth in the bottle. So if you buy these things, that what what's inside the pills is not necessarily what they're saying on the labels. And so it is important to your point to make sure that you're trying to go with a brand that has the credibility and the quality that ensures that you're getting what you think you're paying for. Yeah. And really probiotics aren't necessarily a cheap product. Like you you are going to pay, you know, I think a premium for a probiotic. So just searching the internet or a box store for the cheapest one might not be the best solution uh, when it comes to finding a quality probiotic. So your uh, glucose control and your Acromancia product, you talk about how it naturally produces, gets your body to produce GLP-1s. A GLP-1 seems like you can't even turn on the TV these days without hearing about GLP-1 and the medication Ozempic, semaglutide, Wagovi. So I want to understand maybe the difference and how your product gets your body to naturally produce GLP-1 where the semaglutide is delivering your body a one big dose of GLP-1. Sure. Well, we can start with kind of your body's natural system. So GLP-1, many of us have come to know through the drugs, uh, and those are chemical mimics of a hormone that your body actually naturally makes. So our bodies naturally make GLP-1 when we eat food. And the way it works is you eat a meal, your microbiome metabolizes that meal, and there are these L cells, which are literally like right there at the microbiome gut lining. And after your microbiome metabolizes these foods, it signals to your L cells, hey, it's time to release GLP-1 because we're eating a meal, we're digesting the meal. And what GLP-1 does is two really important things. One is that it helps you metabolize, it, it signals for insulin release, which help you metabolize the glucose that you've just eaten. And then the second thing is it reduces your food cravings. And it does that in two different ways. One is that it sort of slows your gastric emptying. So with everything slowed down and like so-called backed up, you're not hungry. And then the other thing, which is a little bit less well understood, is that 
it somehow also signals to your brain that you're full and, and that you don't really need to eat anymore. And you can imagine that this is an important part of our natural system where you eat and you have this satiety trigger that tells you you don't need to eat anymore. And so what happens naturally is when you eat a meal, your GLP-1 levels will, will spike and then they'll go away until the next time that you eat. So you get hungry again, the next time you eat and then they spike again. And so you kind of have this cadence of GLP-1 going up and down that is correlated with your with your food intake to help you metabolize the food that you just ate and to help you kind of maintain food cravings when you're supposed to be having them. And, and what happens for many people is actually as we age, we start to lose our ability to produce GLP-1 at those levels. And so we kind of aren't producing as much GLP-1 when we are eating our foods. And for some people, it's not even related to aging. There's just this lowered signaling. And so for those people, what they experience is A, an inability to metabolize their glucose as well. And so this shows up as higher A1C, high blood glucose spikes, and then B, an inability to really do this this signaling that you're full. And so then they're kind of hungry all the time, or we hear about this kind of food noise issue. What the drugs do is they said, okay, let's take that natural system and then let's just make a chemical that looks like GLP-1 that we can inject into the bloodstream directly and that we can maintain at really high levels all the time and sustain it that way. And that's what these drugs do. And so they're extremely powerful in a very, very short amount of time because what's happening is you've got this GLP-1 signal that is saying, metabolize all the food you just ate, metabolize all those sugars. And by the way, you're totally full. You're not hungry. And for some people that even crosses over into like, oh, I'm kind of feeling nauseous. And so these drugs have a very immediate and dramatic impact on people in their food cravings as well as their metabolism of glucose, which is distinct from your your body's natural GLP-1 production. But, you know, if you can get that natural GLP-1 production back into the full swing of things, you can start to experience long-term benefits. And by kind of giving your microbiome these microbes, it's more of a long-term game because the drugs, once you stop taking them, you kind of lose all the efficacy because it really was just kind of injecting yourself with these with these chemical analogs. So your body hasn't really learned to make GLP-1 itself during that time. Okay. So are you saying with your medication that your body will eventually learn how to make it again or that you have to continue to take the supplement to get your force your body kind of to produce it? If you can get the strains to colonize, then you're really kind of teaching your body to fish. You're giving yourself the tools for it to be able to increase GLP-1. And the things that help with colonization are higher fiber, higher polyphenol diet, and trying to make sure that you're, you know, all the all the other things that are related to good health, good sleep, reduce stress, that can help kind of foster the colonization of these strains. So no, you shouldn't have to take these forever, but there might be, you know, these things in life that we talked about earlier that can cause you to become depleted. That might mean you need to take another bolus. Also, I will just say, just personally speaking, I find behavioral change to be super hard. So for me, <laughs> if you ask me to like long-term change my diet in some dramatic way, I'm not very good at that. And so I've kind of stayed on these pills and, and continuing to take the microbes just to make sure I, I continue to have them. What about for people that don't get enough fiber in their diet, but they're taking a fiber supplement? Could you maybe achieve the same thing for colonization or not quite as good as if you just were to try to eat a more fiber-rich diet? The fiber-rich diet does offer other health benefits through the, as I was saying, the whole food, like the food itself does have other, you know, nutrients and benefits. But there have been a lot of studies showing that if you take a fiber supplement, that can also bolster these strains. So if you're able, if you're not able to eat those foods, taking a supplement is is definitely also helpful. So you mentioned that you did a study with the glucose control on it, lowering the A1C. I would like you to elaborate a little bit on that. 
We obviously know these drugs like Ozempic, war, that's what they're originally indicated for is lowering the A1Cs, but they've also now, some of them have been approved for weight loss. So I'm curious if you've done any research with yours as it relates to weight loss, but first touch on the A1C studies that you did. Sure. So probably the, the the pivotal study that was published in BMJ is the one to point to. So that was a placebo-controlled, double-blinded, randomized trial. And in that trial, we essentially put people on intervention for 90 days, so three months. And then we did a washout period for 30 days. And what we found, and this is all uh, in people with type 2 diabetes, almost everybody was on metformin. There were a few people who were also on sulfonurias. So this was kind of like earlier stage diabetes, but but almost everybody was already on metformin. But what we found is that after being on the product for 90 days compared to placebo, people saw their A1C go down by 0.6 points, which can mean the difference between having diabetes and not having it. And then they saw their we saw their blood glucose spikes uh, reduced by 33%. And so that was... I think super exciting for us to see that you can deliver this microbiome intervention and be able to see this reduction in A1C and blood glucose spikes in people with type 2 diabetes. And you're right, a lot of these drugs, I mean, metformin certainly and these GLP-1s were designed for people with type 2 diabetes because that's sort of where, I mean, we're all a little bit on the spectrum of reduced metabolic health kind of from just through aging. But at the other, you know, one end of that spectrum is you have type 2 diabetes and you really have an impaired ability to metabolize glucose. And so in that setting, you can actually start to really see changes and start to create interventions. But I think what we're finding is that a lot of those interventions also work for people who are earlier on the spectrum, the prediabetes and obesity. And so I think that's been, you know, kind of a, a clear theme coming out of the diabetes medication world. What about as it relates to the weight loss? So in that trial, we did not see weight loss, statistically significant weight loss during that 90-day period. We did start to see the beginnings of it towards the end of the the, the 90 days. Um, and so we often sort of say like, oh, man, we should have run that for six months. But yeah. we're a startup and we could afford to run it for three <laughs> months. And so that's what we did. But we certainly, you know, have people that are reporting back that 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 kind of data, you know, around weight loss. And you can imagine that if you're lowering your A1C and your blood glu- glucose spikes and your cravings, you are going to see that outcome on the other side. I think one of the important things, too, is that we asked people to, to be conscientious and to deliberately not change their diet or anything else that they were doing so that we could really just see the impact of the, the microbiome intervention. But in reality, I think what we find is that people kind of see some initial you know, benefit. And then they start making other changes in their lives that get them on yeah. this really positive cycle that kind of results in more immediate impact. I'm taking the glucose control and I had tried some glutide for a little bit because I like to try everything that our patients are going to do. And I lost a few pounds with the semaglutide. I don't have a, a ton of weight to, to lose, but now I'm doing the glucose control. And I would say that, yeah, I think you can lose weight on the glucose control. I think that it reduces cravings. I do think it has some appetite suppressing in it. And I would say the girls laugh. I was like, my stools are like Goldilocks. I had a poop doctor on here before and that's how he, um, that's the analogy that he made. So now I tell him, I'm like, I'm just telling you on glucose control, the the stools are they're Goldilocks around here. So um, I do think that for a more natural option, I think, I think it's, I think you're going to find it to be a great option for for people for looking looking for that. So you mentioned your study was only 90 days. Would you say that to give this product a fair shake that people need to do it for 90 days at least? 
Yeah, I mean, you're a clinician, so you know that it varies from person to person. Some people can see a benefit straight away. Some people, you know, it takes five or six months. The, the reason we did 90 days is because that's the turnover time for A1C cells. And so we wanted to give us, it was about playing this game of what's the minimum amount of time to see an A1C change. And, and so that's how we landed on the 90 days. But I agree with you. I kind of just sort of tell people, like, give it at least 90 days. And you might see something sooner than that. And, and many people do. It might take longer than that as well. I just wanted to say I love your glucose control story, and especially around stool. It's just funny because so many people, I ask this question sometimes when I give presentations, you know, how many of you have ever, you know, gone poop and then turned around and looked in the toilet to like look at your poop? <laughs> and everybody raises their hand kind of abashedly. You know, how many of you get annoyed when there's too much toilet paper in there and you can't actually yeah. see your poop? And everybody says, oh, yeah, that is annoying. And the question is, why are we looking at our poop? You know, what what is this kind of instinct to look? What are we looking for? And really, it is of all the like measurement tools and diagnostic tools that we've made as 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 you know humans, stool is actually one of the biggest diagnostic markers of of our health internally. And what our brain is doing, our our caveman and cavewoman brain is doing, we look at our stools. We're constantly getting a baseline of how is my health. And so having the Goldilocks stool is actually an indicator that feels good. And it feels good in this weird <laughs> visceral way. You're like, why does that feel good to me? It feels good because you're deep in the recesses of your brain. Yeah. It's saying we're healthy. Yeah. I'm, I'm proud enough to talk about it on this podcast, right? Yes. I'm like, I'm like, I'm impressed with myself. I'm like, yeah, that look, that looks good. One of the providers said, I would ask for you to send me a picture, but that just might be that might be too much. I don't. I'm just gonna I'm gonna take your word for it. But it's one of the things that our patients that are on medication like Ozempic, it's it's one of the first things we're wanting to know and inquire about. Like, what is your stool like? Like, it's not normal to have diarrhea all the time, to only poop every other day or once a week, or for it to be weird colors. Like, it, it needs to be talked about. And, and some people are just unaware what a Goldilocks stool uh, would be for them. What are you seeing with people wearing the the glucose monitors, the CGM products? Are you starting to get feedback there? Because I think it's it's so interesting because people are taking this their health into their own hands and they're realizing the impact these insulin spikes have on them. And these biohackers and the people that are really wanting to optimize wearing these, I think they're just delivering so much cool data to us. So I'm curious if you're seeing anything on that front. Absolutely. And you're right. I think people are starting to try to get their hands on these CGMs. I'll put myself into that same bucket. I'm not a biohacker, but I wanted to know if my product worked. And so literally, this is one of the first things that I did was to get some CGMs and do a placebo trial on myself. <laughs> and and actually, it was I was blinded to it. I asked the team, like, don't tell me which one is which. But I knew when I was on product because I actually had more energy. My workouts were better. They were just stronger. And so, and then later when it got unveiled, I also looked at my CGM data and all my spikes and crashes were actually minimized when I was on the product. And we have people sharing that back. And probably, you know, from the biohacker community, more interestingly is, you know, they're really, they tend to be pretty healthy people yeah. overall. But there are certain foods that kind of spike them out of range, and they're constantly trying to figure out, like, how can I be able to eat, you know, lots of Thai food? Yeah. And so um, we have these reports from them sort of saying before and after they have these certain foods that they can now eat. And and I would just say that even though I know that right now in the U.S., CGMs are really intended for people with type 2 diabetes, I think they're such an important tool for us to understand which foods our body is responding yeah. to poorly versus well. I can tell you that I used to like 
drink grapefruit juice in the morning. I thought it was like a great way to start the day. It gives you that big, you know, little jolt, a little tart. And after working a CGM, <laughs> I haven't had a drop of grapefruit juice since. You're like, oh my God. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's funny. Back to the GLP-1 medications. Can somebody take the glucose control at the same time as they're taking uh, something like an Ozempic? Well, so just to caveat, we haven't done a study in people who are taking Ozempic with the product on top of it. So we don't have that data, but we certainly have a lot of customers who are doing that. And, you know, they're, they're trying to really both get the benefits of the, of the drug as well as potentially have the longer term benefits of increasing their natural ability to produce GLP-1. So there's no obvious reason why those two things would be problematic to take together. Do you feel like this? Glucose control has a lot of potential for the patients that have now reached their weight loss goals. They don't want to be on a medication long term. They're 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 transitioning off where then they pick up the glucose control, get to bo- their body to start producing the GLP one on its own, and and take this probiotic. I'm going to get in trouble with our regulatory team if you if you let me answer that question. Maybe I should okay. ask it back to you as somebody who yeah, practices. Yes, I think it is a good idea, and that is how we are are using it at our clinics. You're not alone. So, uh, sometimes I have to ask a question that I already know the answer to. Uh, it's part of the the part of the podcast when I have the expert on here. So, okay, well, I uh, I appreciate your. Um, candor and honesty there. You have a butyrate supplement as well, correct? We don't have a butyrate supplement, but we do have a strain, Clostridium butyricum, which as its name suggests, is able to stimulate butyrate production. Is that product uh, alone enough, do you think? Because we're starting to see a lot of people promote the butyrate supplement. And I'm just curious your thoughts on using that as a standalone supplementation. Generally speaking, I think the formulations are better than the, the the single strains, just because you know these strains exist in an ecosystem and they're intended to work together. That being said, for some people, they've got all the other strains, and so they're just trying to bolster you know the one strain, and 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 then it makes sense. So kind of the answer is it sort of depends on your situation. Now, I I wanted to make the distinction about the strain that produces butyrate versus you know butyrate supplements because they are two different things, even though the end goal is to try to increase the amount of butyrate in your microbiome, the butyrate supplements, I think, are have been challenged with what, what I would say is a delivery problem. So we know that butyrate is actually a super important small molecule. We know that the colonic cells use it as their primary source of energy. We know that if you're low in it, you have all these you know health issues. We know that in mouse models, if you can deliver butyrate, you can improve. There's even like colon cancer studies, you can improve that. And you can improve metabolism, you know, very clearly through these butyrate animal studies. But somehow it's not really translated into human studies so well. We don't see, you know, really strong clinical data. And I think the problem is actually this delivery problem because, as I said, the colon cells are, you know, they use butyrate as their primary source of energy. And so, and that's different from every other cell in your body that uses glucose. And so I sort of liken this delivery problem to, if I was going to give you a million dollars, would you rather I knocked on your door and handed you a suitcase filled with a million dollars? Or if I called you and said, hey, I just scattered it all over Highway 101, you'd probably be pissed at me if I'd scattered it all over yeah. Highway 101 because you know what's going to happen. Everyone's going to pull their car over and grab your money. And so this is the problem with the butyrate supplement. You're delivering the goods, but all along the way, as it's passing by all these colon cells, they're absorbing the butyrate because that's their energy source too. And so what happens is the butyrate doesn't make it to the receptor that allows it to have all the beneficial activities. 
What the strain's intention is, is you get the strain, it colonizes, and then it literally produces the butyrate right next to the receptor. So the handoff is right there. It's a, it's a physical property of the strain versus the butyrate supplement. And I think that's kind of why the butyrate supplements are sort of challenged in their efficacy. They don't work for everybody because of this delivery problem. Okay, that's a good explanation. So we're a few minutes away from wrapping up here, but I'm just curious, where is Pendulum heading here? Where's, what's, what future research are you doing that you're excited about? Well, I think there's sort of two things that we think a lot about at Pendulum. The first is really how do we get more people trying the product and getting health benefits from it. And so, first of all, thank you so much to you for bringing me on the show and, and giving me the opportunity to share what we've built and continuing to educate people about the latest and greatest in the microbiome. And we learn a ton from people on the products as we can do trials and measure things that we think are interesting. But even like this food cravings thing, we learned that from our customers that then got us to go run a trial. And so um, we really love kind of the continued learning on what these products and, and formulations can do for people. On the futures front, I mean, we are all still very early in microbiome science, so there's still a ton to be uncovered. We're really interested in this gut metabolism axis and how do you improve metabolism and continue to help your body metabolize the foods that you're eating better. So stay tuned. There are some new strains and formulations that will be coming out targeting that. And then I would say on a kind of longer term level, we're very interested in this gut brain connection. We know that the microbiome produces sometimes log order higher amounts of neurotransmitters than even your brain does. So things like serotonin, GABA, dopamine, and these are all neurotransmitters that have the potential to help people with things like stress and anxiety, even, you know, diseases that are very much linked to those, you know, like IBS is very much linked to stress and anxiety and depression. And so I think these are really big opportunities to to kind of go after the gut-brain axis. And then, you know, even more long-term, I started my career, we were trying to develop drugs for Parkinson's disease. And I think that there's a big opportunity in the microbiome to kind of go after those diseases, targeting the gut as opposed to the brain. So super interested in gut metabolism and, and gut-brain. Yeah, that's amazing. Are these bacteria strands that you think could unlock this do they sit in the distal colon, which has been the most challenging for uh, you guys all to, I don't know, discover and, and be able to create a product around it? Yeah, unfortunately, I think all the star players are these divas that are sitting, you know, tucked away in the distal colon where they're all going to be hard to, to manufacture and grow. And, and you can imagine like part of it is this protection that we have of these strains inside of our bodies. So I think, you know, yeah, I don't think there's going to be an easy street, unfortunately, on, on growing these guys. Okay. So what you were obviously at A4M, you spoke in multiple sessions. That's where I heard you. What were you most impressed about at A4M? Or was there anything else on the floor or any other companies that you were excited to meet, see their product, hear speak? Well, so first of all, that was the first A4M conference I've ever been to. And I think I had no idea actually how big that conference was and how diverse the products were that were on the floor. So, I mean, I thought it was, you know, pretty cool to see some of the tried and true brands that we know in the supplements industry. And then people are starting to talk about, you know, gut testing and, and what can you discover on that end. But even sort of seeing, you know, all these different ways of thinking about sauna and cold plunge and red light therapy. I mean, for me, that's not really my world. And so I found this to be really fascinating. 
But it was a, for me, like a really eye-opening conference just to see all those different products and to have all of these healthcare professionals coming together and talking about the latest and greatest. It was, it was very cool. Yeah, it's a it's a fun show to go to. It's one of my favorites because the because the floor is so big, and it's even better when you get great takeaways like the the acrobancia and the glucose control was probably one of our bigger takeaways this year a few years ago is nitric oxide a supplementation with uh, Dr. Nathan Bry and the year before that we bought red light bed so it's always fun to be able to bring something new back to our patients that we uncover at A4M and feel like there's a clinical application for it so you went from PhD to entrepreneur so what do you read, listen to? Is there anything that you're reading right now that you can share with us or any like go-to podcasts that you listen to? I actually tend to fill my free time with very embarrassingly non-intellectual <laughs> exercises. So I'm not going to share with those because I don't think they'd be very helpful. It's just that the brain has to turn yeah. off and, and that's kind of what I do. I, I th- well, this podcast is fantastic. <laughs> You know, I think, and also I I haven't uh, traditionally, you know, really listened to so many of these podcasts, but I do think that kind of after, after getting this experience with Peter Atia, I'm not sure I can listen to ever the, like the full podcast that, that get on there, but I think there's a lot of just interesting topics and, and next generation things that are coming out. I mean, this is an ever evolving space. And so trying to keep on top of it, I think has to come through podcasts. And I, I very much appreciate all of our colleagues who write books, but I think that this is happening at such an yeah. incredible pace that by the time you're reading it in print, it's probably old news. Yep, for sure. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I wonder that same thing with the guys that are the, the physicians that go through the the work to, to make a book for it to get out and then be like, oh, I wish I would have changed that one page or, oh, that already changed or, oh, I mean, you know, there's just, there's a lot of moving parts when it comes comes to medicine. Yeah, it's hard. I definitely appreciate your time. And I know our providers will appreciate you doing this podcast and helping answer some additional questions that our patients have. I will attach the studies we talked about, uh, links to their website, links to be able to find Pendulum social media, all that good stuff. Again, thank you for tuning in. And Colleen, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. 